Chapter 2. Even at night, the river shone red. As Kell stepped from the bank of one London onto the bank of another, the black slick of the Thames was replaced by the warm, steady glow of the isle. It glittered like a jewel, lit from within, a ribbon of constant light unraveling through red London, a source, a vein of power, an artery. Some thought magic came from the mind, others the soul, or the heart, or the will. But Kell knew it came from the blood. Blood was magic made manifest. There it thrived, and there it poisoned. Kell had seen what happened when power warred with the body, watched it darken in the veins of corrupted men, turning their blood from crimson to black. If red was the color of magic and balance, of harmony between power and humanity, then black was the color of magic without balance, without order, without restraint. As an Antari, Kell was made of both balance and chaos. The blood in his veins, like the Isle of the Red London, ran a shimmering healthy crimson, while his right eye was the color of spilled ink, a glistening black. He wanted to believe that this strength came from his blood alone, but he could not ignore the signature of the dark magic that marred his face. It gazed back at him from every looking glass and every pair of ordinary eyes as they widened in awe or fear. It hummed in his skull whenever he summoned power. But his blood never darkened. It ran true and red, just as the isle did. Arcing over the river in the bridge of glass and bronze and stone stretched the royal palace. It was known as the Stoner, sorry, Soner Rast, the beating heart of the city. Uh, Stoner, okay, sorry. <laughs> It was known as the Sonar Rast, the beating heart of the city. Its curved spires glittered like beads of light. People flocked to the river palace day and night, some to bring cases to the king or queen, but many simply to be near the isle that ran beneath. Scholars came to the river's edge to study the source, and the magicians came hoping to tap into its strength, while visitors from the Arsinian countryside only wanted to gaze upon the river, the palace, and river alike and to lay flowers from lilies to shooting stars, azaleas to moondrops along the bank. Kel lingered in the shadow of a shop across the road from the riverside and looked up at the palace, like a, like a sun caught in a constant rise over the city, and for a moment he saw it the way visitors must, with wonder. And then a flicker of pain ran through his arm and he came back to his senses. He winced, slipping the traveling coin back around his neck and made his way toward the aisle the banks of the river teeming with life. The night market was in full swing. Vendors in colored tents sold wares by the light of the river and the lantern and moon. Some food and other trinkets, the magic and the mundane alike, to locals and to pilgrims. A young woman held a bushel of star flowers for a visitor to set on the palace steps. An old man displayed a dozen of, dozens of necklaces on the raised arm, each adorned with burnished pebble tokens said let me try that again an old man displayed dozens of necklaces on a raised arm each adorned with a burnished pebble tokens said to amplify control over an element the subtle scent of flowers was lost beneath the aroma of cooking meat and freshly cut fruit heavy spices and mulled wine a man in dark robes offered candy candied plums beside a woman selling scrying stones a vendor poured steaming tea into a short glass goblet across from another vibrant smodal displaying masks, and a third offering tiny vials of water drawn from the aisle, the contents still faintly glowing within its light. Every night of the year, the market lived and breathed and thrived. 
The stalls were always changing, but the energy remained, as much a part of the city as the river it fed on. Kel traced the edge of the bank, weaving through the evening fair, savoring the taste and the smell of the air, the sound of laughter and music, the thrum of magic. The street mage was doing fire a street mage was doing fire tricks for a cluster of children, and when the flames burst up from his cups cupped hands into the shape of a dragon, a small boy stumble, stumbled back in surprise and fell right into Kel's path. He caught the boy's sleeve before he could hit the street stones and hoisted him to his feet. The boy was halfway through mum, mumbling a, thank you sir, I'm sorry, when he looked up and caught Kel's black, a sight of Kel's black eye beneath his hair, and the boy's own eyes, both light brown, went wide. Matthew, scolded a woman, as the boy tore free of Kel's hand and fled behind her coat. cloak. Sorry, sir, she said in Arsinian, shaking her head. I don't know what's gotten. And then she saw Kel's face and the words died. She had the decency not to turn and flee like her son, but what she did was much worse. The woman bowed in the street so deeply that Kel thought she would fall over. Aven, Kel, she said breathless. Her, his stomach twisted. He reached for her arm, hoping to make her straighten before anyone else could see the gesture, but he was only halfway to her and already too late. He was not, not looking, she stammered, struggling to find the words in English, the royal tongue. It only made Kel cringe more. It was my fault, he said, gently in Arsinian, taking her elbow and urging her up out of the bow. He just... He just, he, he didn't recognize you, she said, clearly grateful to be speaking the common tongue, just as you are. Kel looked down at himself. He was still wearing the brown and fraying coat from the stone's throw, as opposed to his uniform. He hadn't forgotten. He simply wanted to enjoy the fair just for a few minutes as one of the pilgrims or locals, but the ruse was at an end. He could feel the news ripple through the crowd and the mood shifting like a tide as the patrons of the night market realized who was among them. By the time he let go of the woman's arm, the crowd was parting for him. The laughter and shouting reduced to reverent whispers. Rye knew how to deal with these moments, how to twist them, how to own them. Kel wanted only to disappear. He tried to smile, but he knew it must look like a grimace, so he bid the woman and her son a good night and made his way quickly down the river's edge the murmurings of the vendors and the patrons trailing him as he went. He didn't look back, but the voices followed all the way to the flower-strewn steps of the royal palace. The guards did not move from their post, acknowledging him with only a slight tilt of their heads as he ascended the stairs. He was grateful that most of them did not bow. Only Rye's guard, Parrish, seemed unable to resist, but at least he had the decency to be discreet. As Kel climbed the steps, he shoved off his coat, and ooh, and turned it inside out from right to left. When he slid his arms into the sleeves again, they were no longer tattered and soot-stained. Instead, they were lovely, polished, the same shimmering red as the aisle running beneath the palace, a red reserved for royalty. Cal paused at the top step, fastened the gleaming gold buttons, and went in. Chapter 3 he found them in the courtyard, taking a late tea under the cloudless night and a fall and a fall canopy of trees. The king and queen were sitting at the table while Rye was stretched on a sofa, rambling on about his birthday and the slew of festivities intended to surround it. 
It's called a birthday, chided King Maximum, a towering man with broad shoulders and bright eyes and a black beard, without looking up from the stack of papers he was reading. Not birthdays, and certainly not a birth week. Twenty years, counted Rye, waving his empty teacup. Twenty! A few days of celebration hardly seems excessive. His amber eyes glittered mischievously. And besides, half of them are for the people anyway. Who am I to deny them? And the other half, asked Queen Amira, her long dark hair and a gold ribbon, uh, with a threaded with a gold ribbon and gathered in a heavy braid behind her. Rye flashed his winning smile. You're the one determined to find me a match, mother. Yes, she said, absently straightening the teaware. But I'd rather not turn the palace into a brothel to do it. Not a brothel, said Rye, running his fingers through his rich black hair and upsetting the circle of gold that rested there. Merely an efficient way of assessing the many necessary attributes of... Ah, Kel! Kel will be supporting my thinking. I think it's a horrible idea, said Kel, striding toward them. Traitor, said Rye in mock affront. But, he added, approaching the table, he'll do it anyway. You might as well throw the party here at the palace where we can all keep him out of trouble, or at least minimize it. Rye beamed. Sound logic, sound logic, he said, mimicking his father's deep voice. So I guess it's more like, sound logic, sound logic. He said, mimicking his father's deep voice. The king set aside the paper he was holding and considered Kel. How was your trip? Longer than I would have liked, said Kel, sorting through his coats and pockets until he found the prince regent's letter. We were beginning to worry, said Queen Amira. The king is not well and the prince was worse, said Kel, offering the note. King Maxim took it and set it aside, unread. Sit, urged the queen. You look pale. Are you well? asked the king. Quite, sir, said Kel, sinking gratefully in a, into a chair at the table. Only tired. The queen reached out and brought her hand to Kel's cheek. Her complexion was darker than his, and the family royal and the royal family bore a rich tan that, when paired with their honey eyes and black hair, made them look like polished wood. With fair skin and reddish hair, Kel fell particularly out of place. Felt particularly out of place. The queen brushed a handful of copper strands off his forehead. She always went looking for the truth in his right eye as if it were a scrying board, something to be gazed into, seen past. But what she saw, she never shared. Kel took her hand and kissed it. I'm fine, your majesty. She gave him a weary look and corrected himself. Mother. A servant appeared bearing tea, sweet and laced with mint, and Kel took a long drink and let his family talk his mind wandering in the comfort of their noise. When he could barely keep his eyes open, he excused himself. Rye pushed up from the sofa with him, and Kel wasn't surprised. He had felt the prince's gaze on him since they'd first taken a seat. Now, as the two bid their parents good night, Rye trailed Kel into the hall, fiddling with a circle of gold nested in his black curls. "'What did I miss?' asked Kel. "'Not much,' said Rye. "'Holland paid a visit. He only just left.' Kel frowned. Red London and White kept in much closer contact than Red and Grey, but their communication still held a kind of routine. Holland was off schedule by nearly a week. "'What have you come back with tonight?' asked Rye. "'A headache,' said Kel, rubbing his eyes. "'You know what I mean,' countered the prince. "'What did you bring through that door?' "'Nothing but a few lins,' Kel 
spread his arms wide. Search me if you like, he added a smirk. Rye had never been able to figure out Kel's coat and its many sides, and Kel was already turning back down the hall, considering the matter done, when Rye surprised him by reaching not for his pockets, but for his shoulders, and pushing him back against the wall, hard. A nearby painting of the king and queen shuddered, but did not fall. The guards dotting the hall looked up, but did not move from their posts. Kel was a year older than Rye, but built like an afternoon shadow, tall and slim, while Rye was built like a statue, and nearly as strong. Don't lie, warned Rye. Not to me. Kel's mouth became a hard line. Rye had caught him two years before. Not caught in the act, of course, but snagged him in another more uh, devious way. Trust. The The two had been drinking on one of the palace's many balconies one summer, and the glow of the aisle beneath them, and the stretch of the sky above, and the truth had stumbled out. Kel had told his brother about the deals he struck in gray London and in white, and even on in, in even on occasion in red, about the various things he'd smuggled, and Rye had stared at him and listened, and when he spoke, it wasn't to lecture Kel on all the ways it was wrong or illegal. It was to ask why. I don't know, said Kel, and it had been the truth. Rye sat up, eyes bleary from drink. Have we not provided? he asked, visibly upset. Is there something you want for? No, Kel had answered, and that had been the truth and a lie at the same time. Are you not loved? whispered Rye. Are you not welcomed by my family? But I'm not family, Rye, Kel had said. I'm not truly a Maresh, for all the king and queen have offered me that name. I feel more like a possession than a prince. At that, Rye had punched him in the face. For a week later, Kel had two black eyes instead of one, and he had never smoke, spoken like that again. But the damage was done. He'd hoped Rye would prove too drunk to remember the conversation, but he remembered everything. Hadn't told the king or queen. He hadn't told the king or queen, and Kel supposed he owed Rye that. But now, every time he traveled, he had to endure Rye's questioning, and with it, the reminder that what he was doing was foolish and wrong. Rye let go of Kel's shoulders. Why do you insist on keeping up these pursuits? They amuse me, said Kel, brushing himself off. Rye shook his head. Look, I've turned a blind eye to your childish rebellion for quite a while now. Those doors are shut for a reason, he warned. Transference is treason, that rhymed. (laughs) They're only trinkets, said Kel, continuing down the hall. There's no real danger in it. There's plenty, said Rye, matching his stride. Like the danger that awaits you if our parents ever learn. Would you tell them? Said, asked Kel. Rye sighed. Kel watched him turn to answer several. Tr- Kel watched him try to answer several ways before he finally said, There is nothing I would not give you. Kel's chest ached. I know. You are my brother, my closest friend. I know. Then put an end to this foolishness before I do. Kel managed a small, tired smile. Careful, Rye, he said. You're beginning to sound like a king. Rye's mouth quirked. One day I will be, and I'll need you there beside me. Kel smiled back. Believe me, there's no place I'd rather be. It was the truth. Rye patted his shoulders and went to bed. Kel shoved his hand into his pocket and watched him go. The people of London and the country beyond loved their prince. And why shouldn't they? He was young and handsome and kind. 
Perhaps he played a part, the part of a rake too often and too well. But behind the charismatic smile and the flirtatious air was a sharp mind and good intent. The desire to make everyone around him happy. He had little gift for magic and even less focus for it. But what he lacked in power, he more than made up for in charm. Besides, if Kel had learned anything from his trips to White London, it was that magic made rulers worse, not better. He continued down the hall to his own rooms, where, dark set, where a dark set of oak doors led to a sprawling chamber. The aisle's red glow poured from the open doors of the private balcony. Tapestry, tapestry billowed and dipped in fabric clouds from the high ceiling, and a luxurious canopy bed filled with feather and lined with silk stood waiting. Beckoning, it took all of Kel's will not to collapse into it. Instead, he crossed the chamber and into a second, smaller room lined with books, a variety of tomes on magic, including what little he could find of on Antari and their blood commands, the majority destroyed out of fear in the Black London Purge, and, the, and closed the door behind him. He snapped his fingers absently, and a candle perching on the edge of a shelf sparked to life. In its light, he could make out a series of marks on the back of the door, an inverted triangle, a set of lines, a circle. Simple marks easy enough to recreate, but not specific enough to differentiate. Doors to different places in Red London. His eyes went to the one in the middle. It was made of two cross lines. X marks a spot, he thought to himself, pressing his fingers to the most recent cut on his arm, the blood still wet, and then tracing the mark. Astasian, he said tiredly. The wall gave way beneath his touch, and his private library became a cramped little room. The lush quiet of the royal chambers replaced by the din of the tavern below, and the city beyond, much nearer than it had been a mere moment before. Iskir Ice, the Ruby Fields, was the name that swung above the tavern's door. The place was run by an old woman named Fauna, she had the body of a grand, the mouth of a sailor, and the temper of a drunk. Kel had cut a deal with her when he was young, she was still old then, always old, and the room at the top of the stairs became his. The room itself was rough and worn and silver strides too small, but it and several strides too small, but it belonged entirely to him. Spell work, and not strictly legal at that, marked the window and the door so that no one else could find the room or perceive it was there. At first glance, the chamber looked fairly empty, but a cl at closer inspection would reveal that the space under the cot and the drawers in the dresser were filled with boxes, and in those boxes were treasure, treasures from every London. Kel supposed that he was a collector, too. The only items on display were a book of poems, a glass ball filled with black sand, and a set of maps. The poems were by a man named Blake, and he had been given that had been given to Kell by a collector in Grey London the year before, the spine already worn to nothing. The glass ball was a trinket from White London, said to show one's dreams in the sands, but Kell had yet to try it. The maps were a reminder. The three canvases tacked side by side, the sole decorate was the sole decoration on the walls. From a distance they could have passed for the same map, the same outline of the same island country. But up close, only the word London could be found on all three. Grey London, Red London, White London. The map on the left was of Great Britain, from the English Channel up through the tips of Scotland. Every facet rendered in detail, 
By contrast, the map on the right had almost none. Macht, the country called itself, the capital held by the ruthless Dean twins. But the territory beyond it was in constant flux. The map in the middle, Kill knew best, for it was home. Arns. The country's name was written in, a legal, in an elegant script down the length of the island, though in truth, the land on which London stood was only the tip of the royal empire. Three very different Londons in three very different countries, and Kell was one of the only living souls to have seen them all. The great irony, he supposed, was that he'd never seen the worlds beyond the cities. Bound to service his king and crown, and constantly kept within reach, he never had been more than a day's journey from one London to another. Fatigue ate at Kell's body as he stretched and shrugged off his coat. He dug through the pockets until he found the collector's parcel, which he set carefully on the bed. Gingerly undoing the wrapping and revealing the tiny silver box inside, the room's lanterns grew brighter as he held, upon to the tr held up the trinket to the light, admiring it. The ache in his arm drew him back, and he set the music box aside and turned his attention to the dresser. A basin of water and a set of jars waited there, and Kel rolled up his sleeve, the sleeve of his black tunic and set to work on his forearm. He moved with expert hands, and in minutes he had rinsed his skin and applied a salve. There was a blood command for healing, as hazari, but it wasn't meant for Atari to use on themselves, especially not for minor wounds. As it was, the cut on his arm was already beginning to mend, and Sari healed quickly thanks to the amount of magic in their veins, and by morning the shallow marks would be gone, the skin smooth. He was about to pull his sleeve, pull down his sleeve when a small shiny scar captured his attention. It always did. Just below the crook of his elbow, the lines were so blurred that the symbol was made almost unreadable. Almost. Kel had lived in the palace since he was five. He first noticed the mark when he was 12. He had spent weeks searching for the rune in the palace libraries. Memory. He ran his thumb over the scar. Contrary to its name, the symbol wasn't meant to, to help one remember. It was meant to make one forget. Forget a moment, a day, a life. But magic that bound a person's body or mind was not only forbidden, it was a capital offense. Those accused and convicted were stripped of their power a fate some found worse than death in a world ruled by magic. And yet, Kel bore the mark of such a spell. Worse, he suspected that the king and queen themselves had sanctioned it. K.L. The initials on his knife. There were so many things that he didn't understand, would never understand about the weapon. It was a monogram, and the life... Uh, oh, let me try that again. <laughs> so, just so you know, the... um. When it says KL, that's it's written on the knife. K dot L dot. KL, the initials on his knife. There were so many things he didn't understand, would never understand about the weapon, its monogram, and the life that went with it. Were the letters English or Arsenian? Though the letters could be found in both alphabets, what did the L stand for? Or even the K for that matter? He knew nothing of the letters that formed his name. K.L. had become K.L. and Kale, which become, became Kel. He was only a child when he was brought to the palace. Had the knife always been his, or had it been his father's? A token, something to take with him, something to help him remember who he'd been. Who had he been? The absence of memory ate at him. 
he often caught himself staring at the center of the map on the wall, wondering where he had come from, who he'd come from. Whoever they were, they hadn't been Antari. Magic might live in blood, but not in the bloodline. It wasn't passed from parent to child. It chose its own way, chose its shape. The strong sometimes gave birth to the weak, or the other way around. Fire wielders were often born of water mages, earth movers from healers. Power cannot be cultivated like crop, distilled through generations. If it could, Antari would be sown and reaped. They were ideal vessels, capable of controlling any element of, and of drawing any spell, of using their blood to command the world around them. They were tools, and in the wrong hands, weapons. Perhaps the lack of inheritance was nature's way of balancing the scales of maintaining order. In truth, none knew what led to the birth of Antari. Some believed it was random, a lucky throw of dice. Others claimed that Antari were divine, destined for greatness. Some scholars, like Tyrion, believe that Antari were the result of transference between the worlds, magic of different kinds intertwining, and that that was why they were dying out. But no matter the theory on how they came to be, most believe that Antari were sacred, chosen by magic or blessed by it, perhaps, but certainly marked by it. Kel brought his fingers absently to his right eye. Whatever one chose to believe, the fact remained that Antari had grown even more rare and therefore more precious. Their talent, had always, their talent had always made them something to be coveted, but now their scarcity made them something to be gathered and guarded and kept, possessed. And whether or not Rye wanted to admit it, Kel belonged to the royal collection. He took up the silver music box, winding the tiny metal crank. A valuable trinket, he thought, but a trinket all the same. The song started, tickling his palm like a bird. He didn't set down the box. Instead, he held it tight. The notes whispering out as he fell back onto the stiff cot and considered the small, beautiful contraption. How had he ended up on this shelf? What had happened when his eye turned black? Was he born that way and hidden, or did the mark of magic manifest? Five years. Five years he'd been someone's son. Had they been sad to let him go? Or were they gratefully off or had they gratefully offered him up to the crown? The king and queen refused to tell him of his past, and he'd learned to stop voicing his questions, but fatigue wore away at his walls and let them through. What life had he had forgotten? What life had he forgotten? Kel's hand fell away from his face as he chided himself. How much could a child of five really have to remember? <laughs> Whoever he'd been before was brought to the palace. That person didn't matter, matter anymore. That person didn't exist. A music box's song faltered and came to stop, and Cal rewound it again and closed his eyes, letting the gray London melody and the red London air drag him down to sleep. <laughs>